Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. It's me, Annie McManus here. Delighted to have you with us for episode four of this new series of Changes. Hope you're doing well. In this week that's just passed, I have really noticed that the seasons have officially changed. I wore a coat today out and about. There's no kind of hints or glimpses of the summer just gone anymore. We're fully in autumn. I'm here for it. I love autumn. I love tights. I love winter boots. I love the colour of the leaves as they fall off the trees. I'm down. And delighted to bring you a very good conversation to go along with those kind of clumpy booted walks through fallen leaves over the next few weeks. So, you know how some people seem to arrive at the very top of their field, completely fully formed? I think it's fair to say Jimmy Carr is one of those people. He kind of shot out of nowhere in the early 2000s with his entire onstage comic persona dialed in. He was really dark, very cutting and extremely quick. He took audiences to uncomfortable, dangerous places and seemed to really revel in that discomfort. And bar a few physical changes, new hair, new teeth, that kind of thing. He's more or less stayed exactly the same over the 15 years or so that he's been a mainstay on our televisions and on our stages. Even as the culture around him has undergone a huge amount of upheaval, with more discussion than ever on the types of jokes that should and shouldn't be told, Jimmy Carr has stayed Jimmy Carr, a comic for whom notions of good and poor taste don't really apply. Now, to stay that steadfast in your attitude to comedy, to success, to life, you'd think you'd have to have a pretty strong, unshakable foundation, right? That's what I assumed about Jimmy Carr, that he's always been this kind of acerbic, smart, guy who's kind of seemed to have it all. But what I've realised in doing my prep for this interview is that I had no idea about the man behind the persona. I was kind of astounded to realise just how much personal turmoil delivered Jimmy Carr to the place he is today. We're talking really profound, enormous changes of the highest order. The Jimmy Carr you see on stage today has not always been that way. At the age of 25, He was a marketing executive at an oil company. He was a practicing Catholic. He was a virgin. Over the course of the following conversation, you're going to find out what made him make some of the biggest changes a person can make and why he'd recommend that anyone in a similar position can do the same. He's written about a lot of these ideas in a book called Before and Laughter, which has just been released. It's kind of part memoir, part self-help book, which sounds odd until you start actually speaking to Jimmy and you realise how much advice he has to share. But don't expect him to be too earnest about anything. Enter the podcast, Jimmy Carr. I had lots of other titles that I wasn't allowed to use. Initially, I wanted to call it uh, Just the Tip, Take It from Jimmy Carr. (laughs) They they said that had negative connotations. At one point, I wanted to call it Jim will fix it, but apparently 
the title was already oh, taken. Come on. But it, it is in the kind of semi in the format of self-help of like, yeah, I'm, no, yeah, I'm going to tell you about my life, but I'm going to also suggest ways for you to live your life. Well, don't you get that? Whenever I read someone's autobiography, it is like, you know, you sort of think, God, they talk about themselves a lot. I mean, they never stop. It's like sitting next to someone on cocaine at a dinner party. You think this, this guy's a lot. So I thought I'd split the difference and write about, yeah. And when I look back on my life, I kind of looked at, well, what's the thing that I did? Not becoming a comedian, because it's so specific that what I did was so specific to me, but actually the idea of going, changing things and doing what you want to do. There's a lot of people that I meet that are kind of, you know, it, it tends to be the thing you associate with people that have just left school or college trying to find their way in the world. But I think a lot of people are doing that later on, especially post pandemic. They're kind of looking at their lives and going, actually, what do I want to do? Not what's the road that I've been on and what's the logical next step, but what's the thing that, you know, changes everything. Yeah. And I'm really, like, I'm really, really genuine. I know everyone says they say this, but I am really enjoying the book. And I've learned. It's in the contract <laughs> of the podcast that you have to say, you actually have to say that twice. I think you've got to say it again at the end of the say podcast. Say it again at the end. Yeah. And hold it up. Yeah. But I realized as I was reading it that, you know, for someone so prolific, and so kind of on my telly and just just out there in public consciousness. I know so fucking little about you and who you are as a person. Uh, the main thing is is the fact that you're Irish. How did I not know that? Oh yeah, I mean the family's the family's all from Limerick. We're all from yeah, Stab City, as I believe it's called. With some, yes, it is. With some yes. Romany blood. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, I mean, I, I suppose the joke on it was, you know, I'm a plastic paddy, so I, you know, born here, but Irish blood, English heart. I think I quote Morrissey in the book actually. Did you grow up, you know, thinking you were Irish? Yeah, I think it was that because you're, I mean, kids tend to do that anyway. You tend to have the accent of your parents. Um, my mother had a very kind of soft Limerick accent. So I had a bit of an Irish accent as a kid. And then at school, you would kind of, you would change that a little bit. And you were very conscious of, I suppose early on, you were conscious of being a little bit other and conscious that you were different when you went to, when I went to Kilkee on the West Coast of Ireland for summers as a kid, you would notice you had an Irish accent in the summer and then you came out of school and changed it. And I suppose it's that first little glimpse, you know, not consciously, but you sort of think, oh, we are stories that we tell ourselves. We are, you know, you kind of define yourself differently. And through life, that happens a couple of times. You can do that unconsciously and maybe you feel more authentic or you can think about it and then get what you want. And looking back at childhood, is there a change that went on that was a high impact change for you? The most obvious one was changing schools at 16 because I basically lost all of my baggage in, in one. And, and I knew that then that was possible because I went from, I went to, I was very lucky. I grew up in an area where the local state school was a grammar school. So I grew up in Slough and I went to a school on the Britwell estate in Slough called Burnham Grammar, which was a pretty good school. And I was very badly behaved and I messed around and I did kind of okay, maybe. I couldn't really read until I was about maybe 10. Couldn't read or write, quite dyslexic, but then kind of did all right at school. Like did fine and was a good laugh and kind of one of the lads. Did someone diagnose you at the time? Like, did you know you had dyslexia? Uh, no, it was kind of, I think it was, it was very slightly pre-dyslexia being a thing. So what did you think about yourself? That's... I think they just thought this kid's not the brightest. Right. Which is sort of all right. And then, and then someone kind of mentioned dyslexia. No one tested me. I got tested for dyslexia when I was at Cambridge. And they went, oh, yeah, you're massively dyslexic. But by then, you've got the coping mechanisms to kind of go, well, look, I can get past it. I can kind of, my scribble became, you know, legible enough. But that thing of like 
changing schools meant meant kind of everything because I, I went to another school up in High Wycombe, which was you know a bus and a train ride or whatever. Went to the Royal Grammar School, and that was it was a much better school. But also, I noticed when I arrived there, I kind of went, you know, I had a, I had a couple of very good teachers that kind of went like took me to one side and went, look, you're a bright kid, don't mess around. You could go to Cambridge, and I suddenly went, oh okay, that's okay, I'll do that. Because you'd never looked at yourself as a bright kid before in that way, in that academic way. And it's it's weird how um, wishful thinking kind of works or, or that thing of, I'm a great believer. I, I kind of think wishing wells work, but they work before you think they work. The interesting thing about wishing wells, the way they work is they make you think about what you want. And knowing what you want seems to me to be the absolute key to life. That seems to, that's the thing. That's the whole show. What do you want? That's the question. So the wishing well is fantastic because you stand there and you think about what you want and then you throw a coin in. Now, throwing the coin in ain't nothing. Keep the coin. But thinking about what you really want in life seems to be the, the thing because then making it happen becomes well, you can just kind of figure out what the steps are. What did you want when you moved to this new school? I, I think I wanted the uh, slightly, I wanted to be the bright kid. I found, I found that very aspirational. Maybe that was a hang up from my early childhood of, you know, being in the special ed class and not being able to read. You wanted to kind of re- define yourself and go, no, no, I'm, I'm bright. So you end up kind of slightly overachieving academically for, for no reason. I mean, I, I essentially, I went to university in the 1950s. Looking back, it was kind of a misstep. Everyone else was taking ecstasy and I was at, you know, a, a cheese and wine party sipping port. It's just like, okay, it's, like, it's a weird place to go because it's, you take all of, the, all of the kids that were, you know, the brightest kids at their school and you throw them together and you just, and let the insecurity happen. Hey, what did your like? What did your family make of you as a kid? Uh, I believe they're calling it now emotional incest or uh, enmeshed. I had a close relationship with my mother, where I was like a surrogate parent. So we were, you know, uh, probably, you know, arguably too close. But then you're either going to love your kid too much or not enough. And I'd rather, I'd rather they erred on the too much. Were you the oldest? No, I was the middle kid. Middle kid, interesting. Yeah, middle kid, very close to my mum and. So I was, I, you know, I got on very well. I didn't really do anything around the house. I was just kind of there for vibes. Yeah, and vibes master. My theory is with, with any comedian, if you ever interview another comedian, uh, there's only one question you need to ask. Which of your parents was sick? Every comic has a sick parent, either physically or emotionally, and they had to make things okay. Or, you know, 95% of them. So that's, that's kind of, I mean, you explain it in the book, the, the idea of... Being there, you felt at the time your sole function was to cheer up your mom. Just, just be there to make her happy. I make, make the atmosphere in the house okay. Yeah, right, the, the atmosphere you. in the house was often strange. So you kind of you you look for a good atmosphere. And then my job now is changing people's states. You know, they come and they come to a show, and you change their state. You change their being. So, is there a point in your life when you realised the power of being able to make someone laugh? Uh yeah, I mean, I don't know whether there was a there was a, a, a one a light moment. bulb moment. Yeah, my, my mother had a very strange laugh. So my mother had narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder, but she also had cataplexy, which which often goes alongside it. Which is a uh, have you ever met someone that makes no noise when they laugh? They just yes. do like a yeah. weird little yeah. Yeah. weird kind of wobble. You can tell they're laughing, but they, yeah. it's kind of like they lose muscular control. So my mother had a very extreme version where she would probably lose, she would probably like melt like a witch in the Wizard of Oz when she laughed. So I was really motivated to make her laugh because it was a really fun sort of thing. She would sort of melt away if she said something funny enough. So I think throughout my childhood, kind of making her really lose it laughing 
felt like a very uh, cathartic thing. Your mum, from how you describe her, it sounds like the most wonderful, vibrant Irish mammy. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, I also say in the book, difficult to talk about your mother and not sound like Perkins from Psycho. It's like Not at all. I don't think so. That's how everyone talks about their mother on this podcast. That's what. That's how it works. It's like yeah, no, she was she was really really fun. Uh, uh, yeah, beautiful kind of um, uh, you know very funny as well. I mean, really really funny woman. Yeah. So you were kind of influenced by her in terms of being able to be so funny. Yeah, and she had a real ability to kind of you know control a room. You know, you you know walk in and you kind of notice the difference. And it's an interesting kind of thing. I mean, I talk a lot in the book about the difference between charm and charisma. Well, they're, they're kind of conflated words in our culture. They kind of mean the same thing. But I think she's quite a charismatic person. I'm presuming that your adult change is going to be what happened to you around when you were 25, um, when you kind of took hold of your life. I think, I think really the most fundamental was losing my faith. Because if you think about like the, uh, the trigger points, if you think about like what religion is, uh, certainly to me, and, you know, I don't want to be, uh, you know, listen, uh, you do, do whatever you want to do. But for me, religion was, it's the ultimate in procrastination. It's, it's, uh, it's never mind this life, live for the next life. And I think suddenly losing that, you kind of, you, you kind of, uh, you know, there's a rebalancing. And then you're thinking, right, what, what, what are we going to do now? This is it. The wonderful thing about this life is this is it. And then, you know, th- there's, there was a huge change from kind of going, well, I want to leave my job. And, uh, you know, looking back, it looks like a very sensible decision to leave middle management to become whatever, rich and famous. But you don't leave it for that. You leave to do tiny gigs above. Pub. You leave, ultimately, it's like joining the circus. And, you know, everyone thinks you've lost your mind, but you go, yeah, but I just, I, I can't do it anymore. So the first thing that happened is, did, was it, did you go to Israel? Yeah, I went to, I went to Israel. Like, I wanted to go, I had like leave at work that I hadn't taken and I wanted to go away. I would have gone away with mates, but like, it was kind of the wrong time of year that, you know, everyone, like, no one had any money. So, and I thought, well, I'd never been to Israel. I'd really like to go. And I was, I, you know, brought up Catholic and I thought it'd be interesting to go and see. And I like, you know. I thought we got. I didn't really know much about about Israel at the time. I mean, I love it now. I go, I go a lot. Um, and went there and kind of went. Oh, this is this is bullshit. This is like a this is like a, a, a you know. I mean, I love Jerusalem as a place. I would recommend it anyone go there. It's great. But go there for the food. Go there for the people. Don't go. Don't go there for the for the religious artifacts. It's it's not. I mean, it's a, Jerusalem's only nine hundred years old as well. It burnt down and they rebuilt it. I'm like, yeah, tourists. Are, um, it's old enough. And it feels to me like the thing that I was struck by was you go there as a Catholic or a Christian, whatever it is, and you go, the religious bit is there, your, your Christian bit. And then next to it is the Muslim bit and next to it is the Jewish bit. And you sort of go, oh, well, if I'm right, they're wrong. And it felt so arrogant. It felt so kind of, and, and really, even the most religious person in the world, you know, the Pope or, or, or the, the rabbi or the mullah, he only believes in one more religion than me. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Pope thinks all other religions are bullshit. Does he, though? Yeah. Doesn't he? Res- did you reckon? I mean, it's just different paradigms. It's just different sets of rules, isn't it, that people follow. But ultimately, it's all about feeling safe in the world. I mean, there is only, you know, one true way in light. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's okay. fairly, it's, 
I mean, fairly, yeah, like, sure. you could say, them. as an atheist looking in, you could. it's nice to go, hey, listen, all religions are the same. There's the same basic teachings. But I don't know if you know anything about world history, but there's quite a lot of war. <laughs> so you went in as a you know a, a kind of devout Catholic, someone who'd been practicing. Not, not devout. Not, not devout. devout. But I was a believer. I, I genuinely. Were you practicing? Did you go to mass and stuff? Yeah, we go to mass, but not not yeah. not often. Not uh, and I was much more into kind of you know charismatic Catholic worship than than kind of straight you know boring mass. But and then it it just went you know kind of disappeared entirely. And then suddenly I I, I don't see atheism as a cold intellectual, you know, boring, finger-wagging thing. I see it as a rush of blood to the head. I see it as the most kind of exciting, empowering move that you could make. And it really feels like that belief change is the seed of all the other change. And I, I, I genuinely believe that. I believe I'm, I'm what happens when you believe what I believe. So how did it change you, that losing of your religion after Israel? It sort of focused my attention on getting on with life and living rather than just kind of doing the right thing, doing the logical next thing. It, I became much more interested in what I wanted and thinking about what I wanted. And you talk about this idea of kind of wearing a mask up to that point, kind of going through the motions of life and, and what you felt you should be doing. Yeah, I think, but I, but I mean, everyone does that to a point, don't they? I mean, I'm trying to think, what's the first decision you make in your life? You know, because it's, you don't make a decision to go to school, you get sent to school, right? And then you stay on at school kind of for as long as you can, right? These days, like you stay, you do your GCSEs. Most kids, I would say in Great Britain, try and stay on for their A-levels. Um, you know, a couple drop out early and, you know, drop out or they go and get an apprenticeship, whatever. You've really got to know what you want to do to do that. So most people try and stay on and then you try and get to university, right? So you've really not made a decision and you're 21. And even at 21, you get led down the kind of career path of go, well, go and talk to this guy about what you should do. And these people are hiring and you get the job and then you wake up and you're 55 and you're getting a pension. Yeah. And so just to clarify, you graduated from Cambridge and went and worked as a marketing exec at Shell, right? Yeah. I had some jobs in advertising first and then, yeah, it was marketing in a large oil company. I mean, if Greta Thunberg is listening, I had no idea at the time. It was a different time. We thought fossil fuels were all right. But at the time, like, you enjoyed your job? You were, you were happy enough? No, not really. I was, I was kind of, I got very frustrated. Post-university, you're trying to hang on to that life that you had at university, which was largely drinking-based, um, but a lot of fun. And then, and then you're kind of, like, the working week is kind of, ah, uh, I didn't love it. And, uh, and so I was looking for something else, but couldn't think. I was not exposed to anything more fun. You then went and kind of, took the time to do courses at the weekend or a course in order to find and kind of seek out something new, which was comedy, right? Yeah, but I think that was, I think for me as well, the, the self-help thing is, is a huge part of my life. Because at that stage, when I, when I lost my religion, I then got into uh, lots of kind of self-help stuff, lots of, I suppose you call it human potential movement, you know, West Coast, Californian stuff, where you would kind of go, well, actually, there's more to life than this, and there's a different way of thinking about things. So I got very into things like NLP therapy and CBT. Neuro-linguistic programming, right? Yeah. So I, I really liked that. And I, I went on some courses and I went on courses because it was a way to get kind of cheap therapy and then ended up going, well, it, it really appealed to me. And it, it kind of changed the way that I saw the world. And that's my other, you know, the thing that I sort of say in the book, that the idea that, that the map is not the territory. We all have our own kind of ideas of what the world looks like. 
but mainly it's it's kind of how you react to the world. Your disposition is more important than your position, and you can change your disposition. Mm. So what happened next then? You went to neurolinguistic program, you went to these courses. What happened next in terms of you making changes for your life? I, I think it was just that thing of like, I started to kind of, I, I don't know whether you would sort of say it was uh, crazy, but I just kind of went, I, I, can't, I can't be doing this. I don't know whether you would call it a crisis. I guess if it hadn't worked out, you would look back at it and go, oh, he had a mental breakdown in his mid-20s. But because it worked out, you look back and go, hey, well, what a great decision. But it's a really, I try and be as supportive as I can of people that just leave their job and go, right, I'm going to go and do my thing. I, I love it. I love it when people do that. I think it's just, it's, uh, it, it's always the right decision. And I think it's happening a lot more recently. There's people kind of b- being less afraid to take a leap of faith. Well, it wasn't faith in your part, but you know what I mean. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a weird one as well, because you sort of imagine that when you're, I mean, I never felt older than when I was 25 and working in a job that I didn't particularly like, didn't really mean anything to me. You know, at the end of the day, if you're working for a large corporation, you're working for shareholder value. Mm. It's not, it's not very incentivizing, is it? <laughs> well, I would struggle to give a fuck. I mean, really, you, you know, even at that age. And then you're looking at your, your boss and your boss's boss and going, well, I don't want either of their jobs. Jimmy, was there a snapping point, though? Um, I guess sort of when I resigned. I resigned, uh, you know, they, they uh, again, it was just good timing. They, they had voluntary redundancy at the company. And I think they were trying to get rid of dead weight, you know, guys in their 50s that, you know, in mental management. And I went, yeah, I'm going to go. I got paid a lot of money and just kind of went, well, I'll just live at home for a while. And you, you talk about when you did comedy for the first time and, and how quickly you made that jump. You know, you didn't wait to become established as a comedian. You were like, right, I've done comedy. You know, what was it about comedy, standing on stage, that compelled you to just make that change so extremely? I mean, I suppose it's, I mean, at, at a very, you know, a very simplistic level, you know, without, you know, getting Freudian, you, you kind of, you go, well, you're up, you're you're sad. I wasn't depressed. I was sad in my mid-20s. And I think, again, those two terms have become conflated in our language. So depression is a very serious thing involving a chemical imbalance in your head. It's a disease like any other. And, you know, at its most extreme, you know, suicide is a byproduct of it. And sadness is when you don't like your circumstance. And that's okay, but it's become much more unacceptable to say I'm sad. You know, people, people say they're depressed and it, it's kind of, it's very, oh, it's okay. But if you say you're sad or you're a sad little man, it's like, oh, okay, that's awful. So I like the idea of being sad. I like the idea, because when you're sad, you can do something about it. And I went, well, I'm sad and it's because I don't like where I work and I don't like what I'm doing socially and I'm going to change all that. So it was much easier to kind of go, right, I'm, gonna, I'm in control of this. So you put yourself in control. You put yourself right in the center and go, right, I'm, I'm in charge. And something about comedy that was so incredibly joyful. And immediately that I started doing it, like I remember going to the first, you know, you start going to, you know, concerts, big theatres, and then you go to the comedy store and then you end up in small pubs at tryout nights. And the camaraderie immediately that you start doing it, you start, not only are you doing something you like, you're meeting interesting people. And it felt like I was recapturing that college life of like the great thing about showbiz and comedy is you're constantly meeting other people that are on this road and something about show people. There's something about comics in particular that's we're out for ourselves, but in it together. Mm. There's a great line in the book where you say, stand up taught me to be honest about myself. What did you learn? Well, I think that thing of like how you're perceived is like when, when I walk on stage, I'm perceived in a certain way and you might as well just lean into that. 
you know, you, you people make a, a, a judgment as you walk on. They go, right, you're that guy. Okay, that's how the world sees me. You I'll can be deny that guy. Yeah. So there's an honesty with kind of, you know, you make jokes about yourself or you're self-deprecating or whatever, but there's a, there's an honesty to it. So it's kind of owning it. Yeah. I think yeah. And, uh, that kind of the, uh, the edge as well of like, you found out more about yourself. I didn't really know what my sense of humor was. I mean, I wasn't sitting writing jokes when I was 23, 24. Hmm. I wasn't writing jokes when I was at school. I, I only started writing jokes at 25, 26 when I started doing comedy. And it came out of like, I was at a comedy club and I was watching it and suddenly my mindset had been changed and I was thinking, well, I can do anything that anyone else can do. It's a question of applying myself. And, you know, that, that thing of like going, do I have a talent for words? Well, I'm, you know, I'm all right with language and that dyslexia thing weirdly helps. And then I was like looking at jokes and going, well, why do I find that so funny? And then you would break them apart and re-engineer them and go, oh, he must have thought of that first. That must yeah. have been the thing that, he must have thought of the punchline first and then work backwards. And yeah. you could see almost like crossword puzzles. I could see that I was, I was good with wordplay. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and then you find out who you are on stage. You don't really know what your sense of humor is until you start doing it. And you go, and you, oh, right, quite, quite dark, yeah. dark wordplay and quick fire. I like, like what other comics do. I like you know, going to see um, Billy Connolly or, or John Bishop and they're telling very long stories that build up and that's, yeah, it's not me. It's not my bag. And was there other people that you, you know, were you unique in terms of your voice and how you looked? It felt like you must have stuck out at the start. I certainly was unique for the time, but I think I'm quite anachronistic because I, I'm sort of an old school comic. As most people know, most comedy specials that you see will be someone talking about themselves in quite a lot of detail. And right at the top of the, the interview, you're saying, well, I don't really, you know, you're over TV. I don't really feel I know a lot about you. You go, yeah, because I don't really tell you stories about me. I've never done a live show. Like, hey, this is my relationship with my father or whatever, whatever that thing is that would be sort of the norm now you're expecting people to do. I'm very much binary jokes because it's a great skill, skill to have. It's a friend of mine described it as all fastballs. It is. It's relentless. It's just relentless punchlines. But yeah. I, I, I like that from a show. And I'm now sort of, you know, I'm a little bit older and written the book and took some time off. So I'm now trying to change my style again. I'm trying to like, not in the, not the same revolution uh, as leaving my job and becoming a comic, but I'm trying to become a better comic and trying to change the style of what I do and talk a little bit more about what I think on stage and trusting the audience to know what's, what's something that I really think and what's just a throwaway gag. It's fun. And I mean, is there anything that's off limits for you on stage? I mean, is there anywhere that you won't go? Well, jokes wise, uh, I think it has to be worth the risk. I mean, I think there is, every joke is a calculated risk. So you say, well, I can, I can tell a joke about, I mean, you do observational comedy about the routine around the house and you're unlikely to get into trouble. But also for me, I, would, I, find, that, I find that difficult because it doesn't make my heart sing. It doesn't make me, it doesn't make me do crazy laugh. So if you're talking about something that's a little bit controversial, there's going to be a risk associated. It has to be worth the risk. I'm interested in how times have changed, how society has changed, what social media is like now, and where you sit and your humour sits in the context of that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways of coming at that because it's, it is a very interesting time. I don't, think that, I don't think there's ever been a wider disparity between public and private discourse. If you watch BBC News, you would think everyone thinks the same thing. 
you would think, well, it's, of course, everyone thinks this. And actually, there's lots of different opinions out there. And when you go out in the world, you kind of notice, well, there's lots of different you know, sides to this. And I'm, I'm very open to, to everyone. Um, I think the idea that social, social media is very good because there's, there's freedom of speech, but there's not freedom of consequence. So you say whatever you want, you've just got to deal with the consequences. And sometimes people get upset. And it used to be that people got upset. And I suppose they tutted and switched channels. And now they go on Twitter and they make a comment about it. And you go, well, that's, that's fine. That's, everyone's kind of got a voice now. And if lots of them get together, I mean, if more than five people make a complaint, it's then a story in the Daily Mail. <laughs> and, and, they, and, and, you know, they go, contra, you know, there's outrage. And you go, really? Was it outrage or was it five yeah. people on Twitter? When you do your shows, are you finding, and I know that people invest in you and buy tickets so they know what they're going to get, but are you finding that people are being offended more? No. Taking things more to heart. Okay. No, I, I really don't. I mean, I think there's there's a, uh, you know, when I when I talk about things being um, very simplistic and, and 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 binary in the media, it's good or it's bad. I, I think people at shows really understand that you know this is a joke. It's also the, the I don't really agree with the concept of punching down. For the whole concept of punching down to work, I mean, a joke isn't a punch; it's a tickle. And punching down, it makes it sound like well, you're looking down. And it's incredibly patronising to say there's a group in our society that can't take a joke. Oh, that joke can't, those guys can't take a joke. And it's people being offended on behalf of other people. I mean, okay. That's 2021. That's, that's the entire of 2021 right there. People being offended on behalf of other people. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's, it's activism, what's, what feels good and what does good. A lot of stuff that's going on on social media, it feels good. But are you actually doing any good? It, it's interesting. I, 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 can, I do what I do. And the reason I can be a little bit blasé and relaxed about the whole thing is the joke that ends my career, I've already told yeah. Do you think you'll ever get cancelled? Like in a cancel culture world? I've been like, cancelled several times. You've been cancelled. You were cancelled pre-cancel culture, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, like sure. I mean, stuff. The, the thing about being cancelled is it's not, you know, it's not the end. It's my real issue with cancel culture is there's no metric for uh, forgiveness. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. There's a lovely phrase, we cannot forgive what we cannot punish. And I think it's really apposite for now where you kind of go, look, if someone makes a mistake now, then what can they do? There's a lovely bit in, in, in the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, about uh, yeah, read that. Yeah. Ronson's book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. It talks about this yeah. guy in France that was cancelled. And, and John Ronson goes, why don't you just apologise? And he went, oh, I'd love to apologise, but who would listen? Because now, if someone makes a public apology, you kind of go, it's it, like you either go, oh, we should forgive him if you like the person, or you should go, well, he's only saying that to save his career if you don't like the person. Yeah. So you choose. They can't win. Well, yeah, you can't, you, you absolutely yeah. can't win. So I think yeah. that's the, we haven't quite got that right yet in going, I can understand that, you know, sometimes you need to go and stand in the, in the stocks and sometimes, you know, not so much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So Jimmy, you wrote this book in lockdown. You also had a baby in lockdown. You got, is that right? You had a lockdown baby? I had a baby just before lockdown. Right. So, I mean, again, life's all about timing and mine is perfect. So, I had a baby. He was about six months old when the first lockdown hit. So, I got to be kind of a, a full time dad, which I've, I must say, I've thoroughly enjoyed. My theory on people, here's my, here's my big one, right? <laughs> I think we like who we are when we're with certain people. The reason you love your partner is because you love who you are when you're with your partner. You know, that's it. That's at its kind of extreme. I like who I am with a kid. I like being a dad. I like hanging around and playing and messing, and I like being with him. It's it's it's, it's lovely. It, it doesn't sound like. I mean, it doesn't sort of fit with my state of persona, but I fucking love it. And has that surprised you? Because you write in the book about being kind of not really up for it beforehand, as in before you decided to do it. No, I think when I when I decided, it wasn't like a. It wasn't like an uh, uh, impetuous kind of quick decision. I really, I'm old to be a dad and I really wanted it and I really wanted all of it. So I was very kind of into the thing. Like, the only thing I, I find slightly strange is like, you know, you take the kid to the, to the zoo or the playground every day and you sometimes get the eyebrow raised from the other dads. You sometimes get like a, another dad to look at you like, all right, they got you too. And it's yeah. like, no, I wanted this. That's what I up for. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. I knew I'd be in a playground. I like it. You get that in the mums as well. There's there's a kind of default like, oh, eye roll. Well, you you've you've like gone from Radio One now, right? In order to spend yeah. more time with the kids. I mean, how how's I, I mean that that's an lockdown. interesting thing to put after out publicly. Lockdown, surely no one thought I crossed more time with the family off my bucket list. Right, done. Yeah, but I was a key worker technically at the BBC, so I still went to work every night in lockdown for the whole time. So for me it was more like my kids start in school, my youngest kid. So I'm literally like, I haven't put my oldest kid to bed or like made dinner for them for, for his whole life. He's eight. It's like, I should probably be around to do the bedtime stories at some point. So for me, yeah. it was that. It was kind of like, well, I'm going to make this active decision. But it's very interesting how people react to that when you, you know, because if you have women who are like, oh, that's, you know, I'm kind of like let down that you're in your 40s and you're kind of like just giving it all up for your family. It's like, I'm not fucking giving it up. I'm still doing loads of other work, but just on my own terms in my own time. It is a strange thing, isn't it? Like the, we still have these gender roles within, uh, yeah. within society and within families. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an odd thing. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, when he falls over, he run to me and run to his mum. It's, it's a nice thing be to be around it's also that kind of that you know priorities in life are uh, people spend so little time really thinking about what they want so parenthood the thing that you've decided to enter into it surprises you in many ways in that i think that there's things that you don't know about yourself or you don't ever think you'll be that you end up being like for me i find myself repeating things that my mom says or like just you, you realize that you have a lot in you without even knowing it subconsciously from your parents that have come to you like have you in the time that you've had your kid like 
recognised any of that? I mean, not not so much, not in that kind of, not in that right. way. I think I've probably spent more time with my kid now than I spent with my father in my childhood in two years, you know. So, you know, I've been, you know, you're around a lot. You're kind of, it's a, it's, it's a much less gendered role now, I think, than it, than it ever was. And I really like that. And I, I like the, uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, I like the, the whole experience. And has it made you think about your mum more? Yeah, you look back and kind of um, sort of remember the kindness of your of your parents. Like I was thinking about, I was very, very sick when I was a kid. Um, and I kind of remember that. And, and, and now looking at it going, oh my God, the worry must have been, I can't even imagine. I had melangitis when I was three. Oh my and, God. And was like, oh, they must have been, and my mom was a nurse, so she must have known how serious that was. Yeah. So I, you kind of remember, my first memory is like, a spinal tap when I was a kid, and uh, and you, it all comes back to you because you're looking at this little creature. Going, oh my God, I hope you're yeah. right. Yeah, and looking back at your mom who died when you were 25. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. How do you think your relationship with her? I mean, you, you've talked about how close you are. How do you think your relationship with her has shaped you as a person and also as a comic? I'm interested in that. I think as a comic, I think she was quite outrageous. She used to swear a lot. I, I was very kind of. So swearing was the most normal thing in the world. Uh, I mean, so, it is in Ireland. That's that's true. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, has anyone in Ireland got Tourette's or do they just diagnose them as, <laughs> yeah, I think you're just from Connemara, mate. Don't worry about it. Um, but that thing of like, she was swearing kind of outrageous and fun and, and the centre of attention. I suppose you wanted to kind of uh, emulate that in a way and, and to be that charismatic. So I think it's been hugely influential. Mm. And there's a very, I mean, this is the other thing about the book is a lot of it is you just talking about life in general. And then sometimes you just hit us with a line where you're like, whew, and you really just get this incredible insight into you and your life. And one of those was the idea of grief. And you said, the only place where grief couldn't find me was on stage. I'm interested in that and how that is still the case for you. Like, is that still playing out for you? Yeah, I mean, I... I um I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Obviously, uh, my friend Sean died a couple of weeks ago and was really broken by it. I mean, I was like, I had this very visceral reaction. So, I mean, I cried a lot on the day. I knew it was coming and then it happened. And I was like, oh, that's just shit. And I watched a lot of clips of us together and, and kind of, and suddenly kind of realized, oh, we've done so much together. We've done like 250 shows together. And you kind of go, we were kind of a double act for, you know, 15 years. We were in, in our, each other's spaces a lot and we were weirdly close and not close. And it was a, uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was a great relationship, but it was, it was odd. And, and then I just got sick. I kind of, I often think grief does that. I think you're, you're so kind of emotionally beaten up. You kind of, your, your, uh, your system just kind of, I just got kind of like just knocked out for two weeks, just like sleeping 14 hours a day and, yeah, I think it's a, but it's that that line, you know, grief is the price we pay for love. There's 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 a thing of like if you if you feel it, it's real. If you feel it, you just have to just feel it at the time. I think it I think it, it's when you try and stiff up a stiff up a lip or you try not to engage with it that it uh, it can really be you know very damaging. And in COVID, when you are used to being such a prolific tourer like you you are such a grafter when it comes to tour dates how did you find not being on stage I mean it was it was okay I mean it was like I did miss being out there I mean I do I suppose though it's like half time on life is the way I viewed it and 
I don't think COVID caused a lot of problems. I think it revealed a lot of problems. So if, if you know, people didn't like their life, it was very exposing. If you, if you weren't in a happy relationship, it's very exposing to have that amount of sort of time together. Because it was like, I mean, relationships went into dog years. Because normally you spend a couple of hours together and then suddenly it's 24-7. And it's like, what? We've done a month in a week. It's crazy. So for, for me, it was like the, the work thing of like being away from it has made me so grateful afterwards. So you come back and you go, this is fantastic. So it was quite good because I think, you know, probably towards the end of the, you know, just before it closed down, you know, I've been touring for 20 years. I mean, minimum 150 shows a year, normally more like 200 plus That's TV. So intense. But yeah, it's, it's a lot, but it's also, that was the, that's the life I like. That's the, I mean, everyone works every day. Any, anyone else outside of show business, you would never go, oh my God, you work as a dustman. Yeah. You work five days a week. Oh my God, this guy's yeah. incredible. Like, <laughs> people just make a fuss because showbiz, the bar is so low for hard work. It's crazy. Yeah, but like it's, most different bands, like, it's different work. It's different work. Every band you've ever interviewed, right? Every band. And they, oh, you've done an album and a tour and they go, yeah. And then we just decided we're just going to take two years off. What? <laughs> Who takes two years off? Oh, my God. Well, I I mean, I guess what I mean by that is like work. Obviously, you're a grafter. You enjoy work. It makes you happy. But it must afford you something. It must do something for you. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I talk about it quite a lot in the book. It's a flow state. So when I'm on stage, I'm in a flow state. So people often talk about, oh, you're so quick with hecklers. And you go, yes, like I'm in a place. I'm what the on hell stage. is a flow state? What, what's a flow state? So when you, when you do something where you're unconsciously competent, so you go to so stages of learning. So initially you're unconsciously incompetent. You've got no idea what you're doing. You don't even know what to do. Uh, they're like driving a car. Like when you're a kid, you just sit back, you don't know what's going on. And then you get conscious incompetence where you know what you can't do, but at least you know what's going on. And then you get conscious competence where you can do it, but you've got to concentrate. And then you get unconscious competence where you can do it. You don't even have to think about it. So now when you drive a car after 20 years, you're just driving the car, the gears, you don't even notice that you're doing it. So flow states are about getting into places where you're doing something. You've learned the basics and you're doing it so well. Sports are a really good example. So you're doing the sport. You can't think of anything else. You're playing tennis, you're playing golf, you're playing football, whatever you're doing, you're in that state. And why is that state so joyful? Why is it so energizing when you're in that state? Well, because you're in a flow state. So artists get it, writers do it. You've got no sense of time. So when nothing you're else that. comes in. It's just nothing that. else. Comes yeah, in. I get it when I write. I get it when you're I write. You're doing this yeah. thing. Yeah you've, yeah, you've written a book. And like that thing of getting into that flow state is the, the state is everything. And, and what you want is to get that state in the thing you do for a living. That's the goal. Now, now, not everyone gets to do that, but everyone gets flow states. So it might be that you go, right, rock climbing is my thing. That's why I don't think about anything else. That's my happiness. That's my happy place. That's where I get into a flow state. So do that more. And if you can make that your job, make it your job. Jimmy, last question is another change question. If you could make a change to, to anything in your life moving forwards, what would it be? I mean, I've, I've, I mean, obviously, we should, we should talk about the, the changes that I've made, you know, cosmetically. I got my teeth done, I got my hair done. I, I've, I've changed everything. I don't know. I like writing the book. I, I kind of wrote down what I think life is. And I found myself at the end, I did like a, almost like a, a kind of pastiche of Jordan Peterson. I just went, right, these are the 20 things I think. Just if you haven't got time to read the book, just flick through this section. It tells you what I think. I do about... I do about half of those things about a quarter of the time. 
and I'm doing great. But I know if I did 100% of those things all the time, I would do, I'd be a superstar. You're already a superstar. Yeah, listen, I'm a domestic TV star. It's not, it's not the same thing, but thank you. Um, but that thing of like going, I, I need to, you know, do more of that. You know, so I, I know what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat. I know how much I should exercise. I know how, I know how to live and I don't always do it. And I suppose it's that thing of like every now and then you need to kind of remind yourself. Is that like in terms of your career, where else do you want to go? If there's, if there's a Mount Rushmore of comedy, I'm not on it. Oh, shit. But I've got a shot. Really I mean, think? I'm in the game. Oh, I mean, 100%. I'm not on the Mount Rushmore of comedy. I mean, you've got four faces up there. Come on. You want to get on there? Is that the goal? Yeah, I think I've got. Yeah, that's the goal. And, and you know, and you go, that's the true West. And you go, well, there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of West. That's the aim. And you go, and if I fail, I'm, I'm going to fail big. I like the idea of going, well, I'll give myself an aim that's an impossible target and I'll see how close I get. I think failure is massively, massively misinterpreted. We almost need a different word for it. You know, failure is so, it's so negative in our society. And the thing about comedians, one of the the superpowers of the comedians that I talk about in the book is we're good with failure because I've written more jokes that don't work than do work. Who do you laugh with the most? I mean, you know, Sean Locke was the guy that made me cry with laughter more than anyone else. There's, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube to back it up. We, you know, I, I, uh, I, I really miss it. I really miss that, uh, that thing. It's also, it's missing that idea that it'll never happen again. Got you. Jimmy, thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, and you really appreciate your time. Cool. And honestly, really like the book. Okay, you're contractually off the hook. <laughs> You've said it twice. Thank you so much to Jimmy Carr. What a surprising conversation. A couple of things really struck me. Just how ambitious he is. The Rushmore moment. It really put everything into focus for me in terms of his focus and how kind of laser sharp his drive is and how he kind of uses his brain as a tool to really kind of strategize his career and kind of move forwards. I've been thinking as well so much about everything he said about just knowing what you want and how difficult that is, but also how once you get there, once you really soul search and you ask yourself those questions, what drives you, what excites you, what makes you feel alive, when you find the truthful answers to those questions, you're winning, basically, because all you have to do then is move towards those answers. And every decision you make either serves that end game or it doesn't. It's something I really related to from the past couple of years of kind of changing the course of my career. And I found it really inspiring. So if there is someone in your life that you know would benefit from hearing this conversation or just really enjoy it, please share it with them. Also, make sure you like, subscribe, all of that on Changes. It's wonderful to hear how you feel about the podcast. Get on Instagram. You can find me there on Annie McManus and tell me what you thought. A lot of people did that for Hassan Akkad's interview last week. Lou Howe said, incredible to listen to him tell his story. Quartz and Bloom said, this is heartbreaking. What an amazing strength and beautiful 
soul. Next time on Changes, my conversation with a man who some claim changed the entire world of showbiz reporting. His name is Perez Hilton. His enormously popular online gossip site saw him dubbed the most hated man in Hollywood, a badge he wore proudly for some time. But these days, he sees things a little differently. So you'll be hearing from Perez Hilton next time on Changes. Changes is produced by Frank Palmer. Take it easy. Have a good week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.